as we continue in our series of sermons in the uh, series entitled um, Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets. Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets. Uh, the, as I pulled out my sermon notes to sort of refresh them and looked at the date that was there, I remember sharing with uh, Mr. Botter that it's the sermon I ought to have preached on the 19th of uh, November. It was uh, all sort of just being put together when disaster struck two and a half months ago. So finally, it's been brought out of its uh, uh, archives. Thankfully, God's word never goes stale. So you, it's not like uh, shima or relish that if you try to pull it out to offer now two and a half months later, you send everybody rushing to the toilet. This one hopefully remains fresh. It remains an encouragement to us. It remains as relevant as it can ever be. The mountain of God's final reign, pointing us forward to our actual blessed hope and blessed rest. And what I love about this chapter is the contrast that is there between the last verse or two of chapter 3 with the beginning of chapter 4. It shows exactly the spirit that we are dealing with here, that out of death, God can bring life. Out of despair, God indeed will bring ultimate victory. Not simply can bring, but will indeed bring it. So let me just read at least the last verse of chapter 3 and then the first verse of uh, chapter 1. We appreciate the contrast there. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Okay, in other words, a little hill where there are still trees. You can see the trees on top of the hill. Now look at the following verse. Chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, the same one that has just been described, shall be established as the highest of the mountains. In other words, the equivalent of Mount Everest, you don't find wooded trees there because it is far, far beyond the places where trees would be. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. What a contrast. But that is our God. So when we come to chapter 4 of Micah, what we are doing is going from the negative to the positive. In chapter 1, we had learned how we should respond 
to the warnings that are in the Bible. In this particular case, the people of Israel, or better still, the people of Judah, were being told over and over again that judgment was coming and they needed to repent. A lesson that we all need to learn, that repentance is an appropriate response that all of us should give because the God who is there is a God of judgment. In the second chapter, what we saw was God's concern of how we relate not only to him in the vertical plane, but also to other human beings, to other people. Because God's commandments function on two realms. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Two. And in chapter 2, God is concerned, if you've got a Bible like mine, with the oppressors. There's a, uh, a note there in our Bibles. Those who are dealing with fellow human beings who are less powerful than themselves, and they're dealing with them harshly, dealing with them without love. And we learned there that God is... Uh, bringing judgment because of that. And then in the third chapter, we learned how leaders, especially leaders over God's people, can become the cause of God judging the people of God. And that's what we saw in the last sermon. Again, if you've got a Bible like mine, you will notice that there is a subheading there, rulers and prophets denounced. It was because of them that God was now going to judge his people, which is exactly where chapter 3 ended. You remember verse 12. Therefore, because of you, you the rulers, you the prophets, now my people are going to end up being chastised or being punished. As we enter into chapter 4, the picture changes from one of judgment, one of uh, punishment, one of chastisement, and it is now a picture of hope because that's our God. When he comes to punish his people, it is for the purpose of their sanctification. It is to make them a better people. It is a parent who pulls out a rod in order to spank the back of a child. It's not out of hatred. It is in order to squeeze sin, as it were, out of the hearts of the people. So, when we go to chapter 4, 5, 6, and we make our way all the way to chapter 7, just bear that in mind, that we have changed gears. We are now primarily listening to a God who is promising that the future will be glorious. Now, it inevitably presents a problem that I need to quickly address before we go into chapter 4. 
Because the moment you begin to speak about the future, inevitably Christianity divides into at least three categories. The future is referred to as eschatology, the doctrine of the end times, and you end up with what is referred to as the millennium, the, the 1,000 years that is spoken about, especially in the book of Revelation and uh, chapter 20. And people, therefore, read backwards into all these other passages that speak about a glorious season, a glorious season on earth, and they tie it with that 1,000 years. And what I want us to do today as we make our way through chapter 4, you will realize the reason why when you look at God's promises, it sounds as if it's out of this world. It's out of this world. It must be that millennial period. Now, as I said, there are three categories. First of all, there are those who say, and Kawata Baptist Church is one of them, that the millennium is actually uh, picture language. It is referring to the period from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. Okay. Um, when we go through chapter 4, you will understand why some people would question that. And then you've got those who speak about uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ will come before that millennial period. So things will get worse and worse and worse. Then he will come, and when he comes, he will establish his reign on, uh, uh, in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And during that thousand years, it's going to be a glorious period on planet Earth. Glorious. And then will come the end. And again, as we look at chapter 4, you begin to understand why it's so easy to think like that. And then lastly, there are those who say Jesus will indeed come after the millennial period. However, the millennial period is not really a distinct period. Rather, it is towards the end of human history because the gospel will become so powerful, so effective, that so many people will be converted. So many will be converted that the world will change. It will be like heaven itself has come. So that's the glorious period that is referred to by post-millennialists. So if you can keep those three in mind as we begin to make our way through, it will help you to see where the challenges are. So first of all, it is that little phrase at the beginning of chapter 4, it shall come to pass in the latter days. The last days. Which days are these? Now, the bottom line is, as we shall go on to read, 
that the, what is being spoken about is a period when God's rule is acknowledged by the world, we will see that in a moment, that it becomes the highest rule over everything else, God's word is so treasured by everybody that they are really saying, let's go and hear him. And therefore, wherever this place is, it is jam-packed because the people really want to hear the Lord. Let's read verse 1 and verse 2 again. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Now let me quickly explain this little picture. Jerusalem was, was built on a hill. And on that hill, the highest point is where the temple was built. And so it would be referred to as the mountain of the house of the Lord, or sometimes it's referred to as Mount Zion. So whenever you come across those two phrases, they are referring to that place in Jerusalem where the temple was finally built. So by speaking in terms of the mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, it's obviously referring to the fact that his religion, his rule, his worship is now the highest of all the worship of idols, as we shall be seeing a little later. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. So all these other ones are now downtrodden. They are down there. And peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, there it is again, out of Zion shall go forth the law. So his rule shall come from there and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now it's interesting that this was not just Micah's um, message. It was actually also the message of one of his contemporaries who in fact wrote much more than Micah did. I mean, Micah wrote some seven or so chapters, uh, but Isaiah, his contemporary, wrote over 60 chapters. But in Isaiah chapter 2, let's quickly turn there. Isaiah chapter 2, you, you find exactly the same uh, words that one is tempted to think that either one was copying from the other or that they were the two of them copying from a third book. But obviously, you and I know that they were inspired by the same spirit. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established 
as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. Now that's what we will come to read in a few minutes. So just, but let me finish it here. And shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. As I said, you would think that one was just copy-paste from the other, but these were two distinct prophets, all of them inspired by the same God and therefore speaking similar thoughts. The point there, I want to repeat, is this period when God's worship will basically trample down all the other forms that were there. That the nations, this is not just about Israel, but this is all ethnic groups on the planet. The Gentiles will also say, let's go to Mount Zion to go and worship him. Now, you can begin to understand why people should be thinking, now this is definitely not in this period. It must be that glorious period that is yet to come. But in case that's all you are thinking about, we go into the second contrast that is here. And it is this, that the result of all this is the fact that there's going to be peace on earth, peace between all individuals. Verse 3 down to verse 5, this peace that is for all individuals. He shall judge between many peoples. So his rule is now the one, his authority is now the one that is supreme. His law is now the one that is supreme. And because of that, he's deciding disputes for strong nations far away. In other words, he is the one who is finally stating who is right and who is wrong. And the ones who are wrong should be corrected so that the ones who are right can be seen to be right. But more than that, listen to this. And, shall, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So all wars cease completely. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. 
For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. There it is again. His word is supreme. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. That is, they were following these idols. But listen to this. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. What are we learning there? It's, it's this, the, the peace, the tranquility, uh, the security, the sense of security among the people that, that literally makes them not afraid of any external danger. In fact, that little phrase there, I just want us to see it in two other passages. One is in the past and the other one is in the future. And it is the beginning of verse 4. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. We find it, first of all, uh, in the days of Solomon. In First um, uh, Kings, if we could turn there. First Kings chapter 4 and verse 25. First Kings chapter 4 and verse 25. As I said, these with the days of King Solomon, as you all know, the days of David were the days of warfare. That's when David fought and fought and defeated all these Gentile nations around. When he now wanted to make the temple, God said, no, 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 we'll leave it for your son, because you, you are a man of war. Your son is going to be the man of peace. And so in the days of Solomon, God increased his wealth and ensured that there was peace right across. So, the, um, I'll begin from verse 22, though my interest is in verse 25. Solomon's provision for one day was, this is what he was collecting from the peoples, 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, a hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsha to Gaza, the famous Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. Now listen to this. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety. The thing I want to note is peace, safety. From Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So again, you, you can understand that when you are in a place where you are afraid of one another. You normally have security walls around you or you are locked up in homes behind secure doors. But when there's safety or a sense of security, people are sitting outside under trees. They, they are you know, eating uh, roasted groundnuts with... Uh, cassava and so on, just, just enjoying themselves. It's, there's, 
it speaks about a sense of peace. Zechariah, which is just before uh, the last book of the Bible. Zechariah. And uh, chapter 3. Zechariah, chapter 3. And this time, the very last verse. So this is now speaking into the future, exactly what Micah is talking about. Uh, maybe let's begin with verse 9. Let's begin with verse 9. For behold, on the stone, or maybe just before because it's referring to Jesus in verse 8, hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for there are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. And that's now referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Simple atonement. In one day, I'm going to atone for all their sins. How? Through the branch, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to this. In that day, again, the famous in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Again, the whole point is when the atonement has been made, I remove my wrath. The result is peace. The result is security. The people will be sitting outside now saying, come, my wife has roasted some groundnuts and cassava. They sit under this tree and enjoy ourselves. Okay. So that's essentially what is being captured here. And again, let's get back to what we're talking about. So, when you now look into the future, you are saying, oh, even into the present, you are saying to yourself, it can't be now. Because there's war and fighting literally everywhere. All of us, or most of us, are behind wall fences with uh, barbed wires, electrical fencing, and so on. You, 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 we are hardly inviting one another for, for such meals unless it is inside the house with the doors that are barred. So it, it can't be now. So then when is it? Then we start saying it must be in the millennial period when Jesus Christ comes and now there is peace all over because he is reigning. So nobody is doing anything that is wrong. Or, as the post-millennialists would say, that it is, as the gospel is being preached, it will finally be so triumphant that nations will be changed and there will be peace on the whole earth. Then Jesus Christ comes. The problem with that is that Jesus Christ himself said, after the atonement, 
Remember, the atonement has happened already. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. In other words, I'm the one who's ruling. I've done the atonement. Therefore, you now go and so labor as to ensure that my reign as king is acknowledged. So how then do we interpret this before we come to verse 6 downwards? It is this, that wherever the gospel finally reaches and changes human hearts, what happens is that all the idols collapse. The idols collapse. The reign of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes visible primarily in the church. His church. That's where his word is supreme. And therefore, when we are reading into passages such as this, and I'll prove it to you as we continue going along, we must realize that what is happening with the prophets is that the prophets are standing at a certain point in history and God is enabling them to look into the future. It's like you are on a road. And when you are on a road and you are looking into the future, you are seeing but one future ahead of you. But you are seeing some details that are there. And one of the major details in all the prophets is that atonement that takes place. But as they see beyond the atonement, they are seeing the fruit of the atonement, the impact of the atonement, and it is the reigning of Jesus and the consequences on the earth. They are not seeing the distance between one thing and the other. They are not. So they can almost make you think that today Jesus dies and tomorrow there is peace across the entire earth. When in actual fact, when you get there, those of you who've traveled on a long road, when you get there, you discover that, ah, uh -uh, actually there's quite some distance between one thing and the other. That's the way it is. It is called a, a prophetic sight, the way in which prophets looked into the future. But number two, we need to recognize the fact that the, this was the problem that even the, the scholars in Israel faced. Because when they would read the prophets, and we shall see some of it, for instance, in chapter 5, we are told about the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem. That's the passage that the wise, uh, well, the wise men were told from the east that Jesus would be born in, in Bethlehem. When they read those passages, they would see that it's a king that is going to be born, and this king is going to deliver them from their oppressors. 
Why? Because to them, everything was next to each other as they were reading. And that's why they rejected Jesus ultimately. Because they were expecting this great militant leader who was going to sit on the throne of Jerusalem and sort out the Romans, sort out all these other nations and bring them to bow before him. And then here comes Jesus. <laughs> Doesn't even know how to hold this word. He's finally slain by the Romans and hung on a cross. And you say, come on, come. It, it can't be. It can't be. It's exactly the same problem that we must not fall into. So how do we then explain this worship that is supreme and this unity that is there? It's quite simple. And it's this, that the work of Jesus has actually begun. It's an entire journey ahead, but it has begun. So an obvious example I can give Think of the church. Let's use what about this as an example. We've all come from different backgrounds, from worshipping all kinds of our own little idols and gods and so on. But King Jesus has overcome. He has caused us to bow the knee. And to those of you who are real Christians, this is the book that matters above all. This is the book. This is supreme. For those of you who are Christians, you are the ones who are saying to others, come, let's go to the house of the Lord that we might learn from him. Other people are saying, these people are wasting their time. Look, what are they doing there? There's Afghan man. But for you, it's worship. But here's the other side. Think about it. Do you even think that you belong to different tribes? And tribes that were actually warring against each other. Do you even think that out there is fighting upon fighting Upon fighting. Do you even think like that? Think of the way through Christ we have become so united. We are one. From different tribes, different nations, different peoples, and so on, we actually say to one another, Mwana, come Let's say fellowship together. So the point is this. It has begun. And the final fruition of it will take place when Jesus Christ comes again. Because at that point, he will now weed out of his kingdom all that is wicked and we will what we are experiencing now in a nutshell 
is something that is now going to be visible for all because we will look for the wicked, we won't find a single one. But it's not like, first of all, we wait until then. No! It's already happening in that place that is conquered by the gospel. It's already happening. So let's now go on to see three contrasts. One is from verse 6 to verse 7, the other verse 8 to verse 10, and the last verse 11 to verse 13. Three contrasts. And the contrasts are meant to bring out, as some of your versions will put it like mine, the rescue that the Lord will bring about. And again, the thing I want you to notice there is it's primarily a product of Christ, the branch. It is primarily his death, his atoning work. It is primarily his saving work through the gospel, changing lives. So let's begin with the first. And it is this, that at that time, God will cause what is now despised to become victorious. He will cause what is now despised to become victorious. Verse 6 and 7. In that day, okay, so that day, I hope we are now clear from the amillennial perspective. It's not a single day, it's a period, but it's not a literal 1,000 years. It is between the first and second coming. Declares the Lord, I will assemble the lamb and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lamb, I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, I will turn them into a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So this is referring to the rescue that our Lord will undertake. And he indeed is undertaking across history. This, this is something of what the Apostle Paul referred to when he was writing to the Corinthians, and they were busy trying to boast about big names. Big names. And this is the way he answered them. First Corinthians and chapter, uh, chapter 1. After saying, uh, you know, who is wise, rather, where is the wise one, where is the scribe, and so on. Listen to verse 26. First Corinthians 1 and verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, <clears throat> who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, 
and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So that's the way the Lord is rescuing. He's going to the nothings of this world. And those are the ones he's bringing to himself. And it is them that he becomes ruler over. And it is them who in due season become the victors. But let's see then the second contrast. The defeated people are the ones that he now promises dominion. The defeated people are the ones he promises dominion. Have you noticed the contrast there? So he begins, verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So basically all he is saying here is what we will read in a few minutes, that you lost dominion, you lost victory, I am coming to give it back to you. So verse 9, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Reeve and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now, you shall go out from the city. Okay, so you are being taken into captivity. Now, and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Now, by the way, by this time, Babylon had not yet attacked. It is Assyria that had attacked. And it had attacked the ten tribes of Israel. Judah and Jerusalem were still intact. So he is saying, even for you, it's coming. And just in case you forgot, let's quickly peep at chapter 1 of Micah. It's a long time ago, so I won't blame you. Notice chapter 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah, verse 1, of Moresheth in the days of Jotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Israel is already gone under Assyria, which is so concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So he's dealing primarily with Judah there. But he's saying to them that already you are stressed up, Already you are anxious. Already judgment is coming. You shall go to Babylon. But listen to this. This is the change. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And that's the reason why he's able to say, you, O tower of the flock, Heal of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So the contrast is, yes, it's true, punishment is coming. But notice, the Lord will redeem you. Atonement will be made. 
And when that happens, a complete reversal will take place. Now, obviously, in the immediate sense, it was them being brought from Babylonian captivity back to the promised land. But as we will notice when we come to Malachi, what was being promised here is so glorious compared to the Israelites coming back to uh, Canaan from captivity. And that's the reason why they, they really wept when they came back because it, it did not tally with what the prophets promised. I will soon give you the answer when we come to the conclusion. Let's hurry on. The third and last contrast. And it is God causing his people to defeat their enemies, but listen to this, for his glory. For his glory. So the enemies initially will be planning and carrying out some of those plans to bring shame to the people. But then God will turn it around, they will be the victors, and what they will collect from their enemies, they won't keep to themselves. They will say, Lord, here it is, for your glory, for your honor, we worship you. Let's read it, verse 11 to verse 13. Now many nations were assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. In other words, upon Zion's nakedness. Let's gaze upon them. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people, and you shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. This is not just the Lord of his own people, Israel or Judah, but it is the Lord of all the earth. So you will bring your victory. You will bring your wealth and bring it before him in worship. Again, friends, we can see it partly in the context of the Christian church already slowly being fulfilled, but we shall see even more of it finally when we get to glory. Let me quickly put it together this way. God's plans for his people, however terrible the present times might be because he's punishing, he's chastising, and so forth, should still give us great confidence, great encouragement. Remember the last verse of chapter 3. And what we are now reading in chapter 4. God has glorious plans, friends. It doesn't matter how dark the present might be. I've already said that the people of Israel wrongly expected this glorious day to happen as it were the day after coming back from, 
from Babylon. But alas, that was not to be. In fact, as I already said to you, after they had fixed the walls around Jerusalem and fixed the temple and so on, those who had seen the previous one, when they saw the new one, they just broke down and wept. Just broke down and wept. It was a complete scandal. However, here's the point. The promises of God, such as Micah chapter 4, these promises are what kept God's true people continuing to hope. They hoped Jesus Christ came the first time around, and we have continued hoping. We are seeing something of a ray within the context of the church. We are seeing something of it. His true worship, submission to his word, the unity and peace among people who previously would have been producing weapons and, and seeking to kill one another. But we are one. And friends, you can go anywhere in the world, anywhere, and find the Christian church. You'll be amazed how you will be among your very brothers and sisters. You'll be saying, how? How? These are people that you know, completely different culture, completely different part of the world, and yet you are one. It has begun to happen. So how do we explain this? Let me end with Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. I want to suggest to you, in fact, we won't even get into chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36 to verse 40. Hebrews 11, verse 36 to verse 40. I want us to begin with the bad side, the defeated, the, the, the people that um, are being slaughtered in the Old Testament. I begin from verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sown in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Verse 39, and all these individuals, that is, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Why? Here's the answer. Since God had provided something better for us, and he's mentioning us New Testament believers, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, these Old Testament people of God had to wait for the new covenant that includes us before these great promises could now be set 
into motion. So we are, these promises are ours. It's not like we should be sitting there envying the Jews, saying at least Jesus will come to them as we don't know when he's coming. Uh-uh. It's one body. The promises are ours. They could not enjoy them until Jesus came. Jesus engaged in the, the ultimate atonement, sent his Holy Spirit into the world, went into heaven, was made King of kings and Lord of lords, and now he is reigning. He is. And slowly but surely, what the prophets saw is now being realized. It's much greater than what the Jews were expecting when they were being delivered from Assyria and Babylon and coming back. In fact, the disaster was that when they came back, they were still under Babylonian rule. They were not the ones ruling. They were given back their land, but they were sending tributes and everything else back to the Babylonians. And after the Babylonians, it was to the Medes and the Persians. After the Medes and the Persians, it was to the Greeks, the, Greece, uh, the empire of Greece. And after that, it was to the Romans. So they never really were on top of things. Because God had better plans. And it was that together with us, this machinery will go into action. It has begun. Praise the Lord. Amen.